Hey there, I'm Adora Namigade. I only moved to Chicago a couple of years ago, so I'm still learning the landscape. But it didn't take long for me to hear about the Baha'i Temple. Up in the northern suburb of Wilmette, off Sheridan Road, sits a striking three-tiered white temple with a large dome covered with intricate designs. It's surrounded by numerous gardens and fountains, and so it stands in dramatic contrast to the suburban tree-lined streets nearby. The Baha'i Temple attracts visitors from all over the area, and in fact, all over the world. People of all faith traditions, even those without a religious affiliation, are captivated by the place. This brings me to today's question asker, Annie Carroll. She grew up a few miles north in Glencoe, Illinois, and she remembers driving past the temple as a kid. It never gets old. Every time you look at it, you see something completely new. It's an incredibly detailed, beautiful building. Today, Annie lives in Sacramento, California, but she still thinks about the Baha'i Temple and wonders how such a rare site ended up nestled in a Chicago suburb. So. There are seven houses of worship in the world, and there's one on every continent, and there just so happens to be one in Wilmette, Illinois, north of Chicago, which is wild, and I just want to know why. What was the impetus behind putting it in Chicago, and specifically Wilmette? Annie's right. To come across a Baha'i temple is rare, but in all, there are actually 13 houses of worship around the world, in places like Uganda, Australia, and India. The temple in the U.S. is the second Baha'i house of worship ever constructed. It's the oldest one still standing today, and it's considered by Baha'is to be the holiest in the world. But why is it in Wilmette? That answer involves a trip to the temple, a celebrity run-in, and some good old-fashioned research. That's coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Wilmette's Baha'i Temple is open every day of the week. The day I was there reporting for this story, I met many people, including Kritika Yadav, who'd come by with her sisters for an impromptu photo shoot in one of the temple's gardens. Behind them is a reflecting pool, surrounded by pink-blossomed trees. We get perfect pictures uh, here at Baha'i in the garden. It's their first time and they're loving it. <laughs> I'm clicking a lot of pictures for them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Eva Opalka and Richard Kwok were leisurely walking laps on the cobblestone path that circles the temple while catching up on each other's lives. I like that I can walk in circles and think without having to figure out where I'm going to walk and where to make a turn. I like that it's a circle. Yeah, no, I, I come here every now and then for self-reflection, to think, to pray, and um, yeah, just be inspired. 
Rachel Gold comes here as often as she can. Today she's with her friend Kim. And we were just talking about gratitude and how being here helps us connect to what we are grateful for because it's so beautiful. And the, the, the vastness of the building makes us feel humbled in a really positive way that we're part of like a bigger purpose. Funnily enough, I didn't run into any Baha'i adherents while I was at the temple. I met Christians, Hindus, agnostics, and atheists. While some just want to enjoy the scenery, others are moved to visit for more spiritual reasons, to pray and reflect. And that's exactly what Baha'is intended. The Baha'i House of Worship ended up in Wilmette because, as the real estate adage goes, location, location, location. Wilmette was attractive for a lot of reasons back in the late 1800s, when a group of 3,000 Baha'is in Chicago wrote to the leader of the faith at the time, asking if they could build the temple here. The leader's name was Abdul Baha, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. And when he heard about this space that was available, and there was nothing here at the time, it was farmland, that it was right on the shores of Lake Michigan and that it was so beautiful, he gave permission for the temple to be built here. That's Joyce Lidoff the Associate Communications Director for the Baha'is in the United States. The first Baha'is in the U.S. were primarily split between Chicago and New York, but Chicago always had historic significance for them. The first mention of the Baha'i faith in the West was actually here in Chicago at the Art Institute, at the Columbian Exposition in 1893. It was the first meeting of the World Parliament of Religions, and there was um, a, a representative of the Baha'i faith who came and, and spoke about it. Chicagoland was also a good option because it was in the middle of the country and therefore more accessible versus on the coast like New York. Well, Met wasn't even developed yet, so the land was cheap too. After leader Abdul Baha gave approval for its construction, he actually came to Wilmet and laid the foundation stone. And that's why the U.S. Baha'i House of Worship is considered the holiest of the faith's temples worldwide. The first Baha'i temple was in Iran, where the faith started in 1863. But Baha'is have been persecuted there since their inception because they were not following the tenets of Islam exclusively. In 1979, that temple was destroyed during the Islamic Revolution. More than a century later, the temple remains a significant site for Baha'is. It hosts national meetings and visitor tours. It boasts more than 300,000 visitors a year. But like we discovered, most aren't here to worship. So sometimes people come to this big, gorgeous building and they say, where is everybody? You know, and uh, it's a little bit to get your head around that this building is for everyone. The Baha'i Temple is different from most mosques, synagogues, and churches in that members of the faith aren't required to gather here every week to worship. Wherever there are at least nine members of the Baha'i faith, they can get together and create what we call a local spiritual assembly. And those assemblies in Evanston and Wilmette, in Chicago, in other suburbs, host their own activities. They have classes for children, for the moral education of children. They have programs for um, youth. They have um, uh, devotional programs that they carry on, and they have study sessions. On a recent Friday night, when I'd normally be curled up on the couch in a clay face mask after a hard week of work, I change up my plans. 
I decide to catch a talk by one of the most prominent Baha'is in the world. Yes, I have a wig for every single person in the office. You never know when you're going to need to bear a passing resemblance to someone. You may know him as Dwight Schrute from NBC's hit sitcom The Office. His real name is Rain Wilson. And while many love him for his humor, he is a seriously religious man. No middle part, tie, or large glasses today. He's wearing a newsboy cap and dark jeans. The auditorium was packed at his event for the Chicago Humanities Festival. Rain was giving a talk about his new book, Soul Boom. He assumes most of the people in the audience are agnostics, searching for their way. Completely understand why there's no religion for a large part, especially in kind of secular America. Completely get it. That being said, if you want to look at data points on happiness and well-being, people who are members of faith communities are happier and they live longer. So, uh, got a woot-woot from one religious person <laughs> in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Methodist, baby. Um. He urges the audience to find some sort of connection to faith. He really doesn't care which one. What does religion give us? It gives us community, transcendence, uh, a, a shared purpose, uh, a, an idea that we are more than just kind of fleshy beings and that our life has more resonance to it than simply seeking pleasure and comfort and then dying. When Rain was a kid, his family moved to Wilmette to work at the Baha'i National Center at the House of Worship. So, he grew up Baha'i. In the 1990s, as he pursued an acting career, Rain told the audience that he had a lot of mental health struggles, anxiety attacks, depression, addiction issues. And I had discarded the Baha'i faith and the faith of my, my parents because I wanted to go to New York and be an actor and I didn't want any of that morality nonsense hanging around or God or, or anything like that. And so I started an exp a much deeper, more personal exploration of these ideas because somehow inside of me, in my gut sense, I knew that there were answers to be found in spirituality that could help me and steer me aright and help give my life meaning, purpose, resonance, bliss. Rain is sharing this same talk across the country on a book tour. Baha'is actively share their faith by sharing their ideas for solutions to world issues with others. Then, they let people personally reflect on them. Rain is arguably the most famous Baha'i, and he is using his platform to spread the word of the faith, or really, any faith. This is just how Baha'is work to attract new people, at the grassrootsy, person-to-person -person level. Back in Wilmette, Joyce takes me to the best seat in the house. The architect recommended to, that the, the best spot to see the temple is from the corner of the Sheridan Road in Linden. Okay, everyone, listen up. And we call it the long, long approach. <laughs> Come to this corner. <laughs> the building is sometimes uh, nicknamed the silent teacher in that the features of the architecture teach the Baha'i faith. Every facet of this space tells the story of Baha'i theology. The one dome in the building represents Baha'i's belief in one God. The number nine is sprinkled throughout the building's symbolism and architecture. Nine exterior pillars, nine gardens surrounding it, nine fountains. 
18 steps, which uh, is a multiple of nine. The columns are 45 feet tall, and so on. Nine represents completeness and unity. Detailed carvings on the exterior depict the symbols of other religions. The Star of David points to Judaism, and the cross points to Christianity. There are even swastikas on the building. Nazis appropriated them, but swastikas are actually an ancient Eurasian religious symbol. These all represent the oneness of humanity to Baha'is. It took more than 30 years to complete the construction of the temple. We find out why it took so long, go inside the hallowed halls, and discover how this place inspired the founder of Curious City. That's all coming up after the break. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. The architect of Wilmette's Baha'i Temple was Louis Bourgeois. Joyce Lidoff says it was his lifelong dream to build a temple dedicated to the oneness of humanity, the Baha'i faith's central teaching, long before he was a member of the faith himself. So he d submitted his design, along with numerous others, and it was unanimously uh, accepted that, that this was going to be the design for the temple. He wanted the building to be glowing. He wanted the building, he had, he had a vision of the building, and he wanted, in his vision, the building sparkled. But there was one problem with the design. While the plaster model looked beautiful, the know-how to build it didn't exist yet in the early 1900s, until Bourgeois met a guy who was among the first to experiment with precast concrete. They used forms to pour concrete and combine Portland cement with crushed quartz. And it's this white cement that makes the building look so white, and it's the crushed quartz that makes the building sparkle. The temple was finally completed in 1953. The construction faced many stops and starts along the way. Major events, such as the Great Depression and World War II, slowed the process down. It took so long that Bourgeois died before he could see his dream realized. Joyce takes me inside and she runs over some of the basic rules before we get to the main worship space. We ask people not to take photos is simply so that we're not disturbing anyone who's in prayer or meditation. And then also the upstairs, the auditorium, is reserved for the Word of God. And um, uh, people who come and listen to the devotional programs that we have here may hear scripture from, from religions from all over the world, including the Baha'i scripture. We're going up to the auditorium because temple director George Davis and music director Van Gilmer want me to hear the acoustics of the space. They're going to sing for me. Van takes the podium. of changeless splendor, a flower hath begun to bloom. 
These are the words of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. The mostly empty auditorium can sit 1,200 people. I see a couple in the back close their eyes as Van sings. At a Baha'i service, you may hear the reading or singing of various religious texts in the auditorium, sometimes the Bible. Other times, you might hear something from the Quran or the Torah. Baha'is use scripture and imagery of the faiths that came before them because they reveal progressive revelation. The idea that every major faith tradition has contributed to the collective understanding of what is true. George Davis, the temple director, explains. The, the idea is that when people of diverse backgrounds and belief um, and experiences come together in a spirit of unity, worshiping the one creator, then this is really how unity will be spread and created in the world. And the purpose of, these, of, of this whole exercise is that this spirit would actually go out into the world and help to influence the, uh, the transformation of society in a way that creates uh, a better world for all. George says that's why every garden outside features different types of plants and flowers. Those differences can become a beautiful tapestry when viewed together, just as he views the human race. George thinks one of the most pressing issues Baha'is are trying to tackle today is racism. He is an African-American man whose experiences with prejudice growing up eventually led him to the Baha'i faith. There was something about the Baha'i faith and its teachings and the experience of being around the Baha'i community that uh, really I felt I had found my path. Now you're directing this place. Yeah, who would have thought, huh? Who would have thought? <laughs> Not bad for a kid from the projects. <laughs> Baha'is are proud of the legacy of diversity. Long before Loving versus Virginia legalized interracial marriage nationally in 1967, the Baha'i faith advocated for it. How better to really love someone than make them part of your family? And um, in the early years of the faith in the United States, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, the Baha'i community was refuge for some of these intermarried couples. Although Baha'is were ahead of the curve on civil rights back then, their teachings forbid same-sex marriage. Despite that teaching, George is proud of the way Baha'is try to build community with everyone based on their unique spiritual principles. Where we've seen the Baha'i faith have great influence in many places in the world is where the people of the particular community have really uh, used these principles to apply to making their community a place that welcomes, protects, and helps all advance, and really knows no lines, and creates no walls. And, and this is really uh, the work of the faith right now in the world. Learning about these ideas as a young reporter inspired the inception of Curious City, I happened to live around the corner from someone named Jennifer Brandel. I visited her to learn more. Hey, nice to see you. Hey, come on in. Having me. Jennifer is the creator of Curious City and the co-founder of Harkin. That's a platform to help cities all over the country create their own Curious City models. Jennifer says her fascination with the Baha'i faith started when she was around 11, when she passed the temple on her way to a football game with her dad. And I was like, Whoa, 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 whoa. What is this? It was such a stark contrast to the northern suburbs where I was from, northwest suburbs. She begged her dad to go inside, and he got her a book on the Baha'i faith. That book helped Jennifer make sense of her religiously mixed upbringing. 
she'd never quite known how to reconcile that her parents professed different faiths. Wow, this kind of makes it so that neither of them have to be wrong. (laughs) That's convenient. And I was just really taken with it and thought going to the temple and, and hearing about how they believe that all religion is really fundamentally part of the same God was something that I didn't realize had bothered me before of having, you know, a Jewish mother and a Catholic father. But, you know, it was a little bit of tension of like, well, who's right then? Jennifer learned about the Baha'i democratic process and became enamored with it. And when I learned about it, I was like, wait, what? This is how democracy could look? Where there's no campaigning, no electioneering. Um, there are people who are elected based on their character and not on their the money that they raise or their charisma or whatnot, but that they are public servants. And you aim to get the most diverse slate of people possible from age and gender and background and experience and education and all these things. So when a job opened to do marketing for the Baha'i Temple, she went for it. She admired the way Baha'is tried to spread their faith. They had this, what they call a humble posture of learning, where in community building, they're not going in saying, we have all the answers, let me tell you and teach you how to do it. They're saying, you know your problems best. You probably are the closest to being able to answer them, but you might not be able to do it alone. How can I be helpful? And then she thought, what if journalism took that same approach? What if journalism, instead of saying, hey, public, we know what information you need to know, we're the experts, they said, hey, you know what your information you're looking for, you're probably Googling for it every day. And that's how Curious City got started. Back at the place where Jennifer dreamed up Curious City, I look at the Baha'i House of Worship on Sheridan Road. It's nine pillars, one dome, and multitude of religious inscriptions tell the story of a faith that tries to embrace the world's diversity of people and beliefs. I can't think of a better way to close this story than to lay in the bright green grass in one of the temple's gardens, say a prayer, and take a nap. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. It's produced by Joe Dussault and Jason Mark. Adriana Cardona Magigad is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow. Johanna Zorn and Susie Ahn edit the show. I'm Adora Namigadde. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.